This is the Jason Jones Show, powered by Mudhouse Media. Now, here's Jason Jones. Aloha, everybody, and welcome to the Jason Jones Show. I am your host, Jason Jones, broadcasting from the beautiful hill country of Texas, home of the Comanche, the Kiowa, and Walker, Texas Ranger, lots of other Texas Rangers too. And um, I'm going to get right into this interview. This show, buckle up, buttercup. This show is intense. I'm going to be interviewing two Johns, John Gravino and John Zmirak, and we're having a conversation. Really, we set out to have a conversation on the Catholic Reset, the Great Catholic Reset. John Gravino is a theologian and an author. His powerful book, John Zmirak, uh, says deserves to be number one on the New York Times bestseller list. I cannot say that because I haven't read it yet. But I did read his first book, The Immoral Landscape of the New Atheism, and I follow his blog at the New Walden. So we started out talking about the Great Reset, the Great Catholic Reset. We talked about James Martin, Robert Barron, the sex abuse uh, crisis, the, the recent arrest of a Catholic bishop, his priests and seminarians in China. We wrapped it up and we put a bow on it. Now, here's a little warning. I called John after the interview just a few minutes ago, and I said, John, how do you think that went? And he said, I'm, I'm, I'm sobbing because my heart is broken for the church. So this interview goes pretty dark and pretty deep. I would ask that you listen all the way to the end, to my, my conclusion of the show, or if you're like, this is too heavy, just just go to the conclusion because it does get pretty dark. We confront hard truths head on. And what I really liked about this show is we have John Smirak. You know John Smirak. He's combative. He's a columnist, senior editor at The Stream, prolific author, writing on all sorts of Catholic topics for you know two decades. Then we have uh, John Gravino, who's a theologian. And then me, I don't even know what I am, just a Catholic guy, just a Catholic guy. And we're looking at the same problems coming from uh, different places. And if you're not Catholic, this is a really good opportunity to eavesdrop on a serious family conversation. And this is a very serious conversation. And this episode is being brought to you by Movie to Movement, promoting a culture of life, love, and beauty through the power of film. Our newest movie, Divided Hearts of America, everywhere you download movies, it's there. And, uh, you know, tens of thousands of people are downloading it and loving it. So go check it out. stars Benjamin Watson. It's a documentary that looks at the roots of the causes of division in this great republic, Divided Hearts of America. And this episode is also being brought to you by the Vulnerable People Project, standing in solidarity with the vulnerable from the child in the womb. Uh, to the Uyghur and Chinese-occupied East Turkestan, and to our, our own co-religionists in China. And uh, this week was a big week. We reached millions and millions of people with the message. I've, If you can tell, I've lost my voice. I've been doing radio shows, podcasts, and television shows all week on what's happening to the church in China. Go to thegreatcampaign.org. Become a monthly donor. That allows us to budget and expand our reach and, um, and add projects. There's a lot of work that we need to do that we just can't afford to do 
We need monthly donors, thegreatcampaign.org. And do you, it's getting hot, okay? This is my first summer in Texas coming from Hawaii where the weather is always perfect and then a little not perfect. And it's in Hawaii, sometimes the weather is a little off and you're like, this is so exciting. It's, it's 67 degrees and raining. This is so cold and uh, exotic. This or, or it gets to be like a balmy 84. That's, you know, that's it right there. But in Texas, like right now, it's 110 degrees, 99.999% humidity. And my pillow, I never understood when they gave me copy, you don't have to turn your pillow over. I mean, I kind of got it, but I didn't know how hot a pillow could get until I lived in Texas. And if you are tossing and turning and flipping your pillows over and you're sweating and your sheets are nasty and you're throwing your sheets off in the middle of the night, you're turning, you're flipping your pillow up, waking yourself up all night long, that's because you do not have the Giza Dream Sheets and the wonderful best pillow in all of the cosmos. There's a lot of talk about UFOs if you're watching the news. And there is a rumor, there is a theory that they have been coming here and hovering over nuclear reactors. I just read this today in the news. And they are coming here for Mike Lindell's pillows. But all you need to do is go to mypillow.com, use the code Jones, and then you support your head, your neck, and the Jason Jones Show. I'm interviewing two Johns. I call them Gravino and Zmerak. I was asking if I could use, like, I'm not going to say what I asked, but we call them Gravino and Zmerak. It's the John and the John. John, two Johns. Uh, two, two, uh, a brilliant theologian and, and, and to me, the most interesting columnist in the world today, John Smirak. You're going to want to listen to the entire show. Uh, you're going to want to buckle up. And if it gets too much for you, just go to the end. Here we go. Gravino and Smirak, the Catholic Reset on the Jason Jones Show. Aloha, John Gravino and John Smirak. Welcome to the Jason Jones Show. Thanks. Good to be on. Thanks for having us, Jason. Now, uh, I'm just going to call you Gravino and Smirak. Does that work for you guys? Yes, it does. I was going to use ethnic slurs. (laughs) No, it doesn't. Not at all. Maybe in Queens. Maybe a law firm in Queens. Ambulance chasers. Yeah, ambulance chasers in Queens. Gravino and Smirak. (laughs) Yeah. Have you been, you know, okay, that you brought that up. This is going to be a quick, uh, Gravino, I digress a lot. I have ADHD, dyslexia, and all sorts of problems. Um, uh, last week, my family and I were coming back from Lake Travis, and I kid you not, as a truck was driving my family off the road, my seven-year-old yells, four, 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 four. We're going to be rich. Because there's a commercial in our neighborhood for an ambulance chaser. This lawyer looks at the camera. He's like, have you been injured by a truck? Call 444-4444. We're being pushed off the road. And then I finally say to Andrew, when we, when we're, we're, it's clear we're not going to die. You seemed awful excited. He's like, I thought I was going to get to buy every Nerf gun. <laughs> 
your kid is, is a good American. This is what my yeah. seven-year-old is thinking about is his, him and all of his siblings are being shoved off the side of the road. Okay, this show is – I'm nervous about this show. It's the first time I've ever had two guests, and John Smirak talks. when It's just me and John. I don't get a word in. And um, <clears throat> and now it's Gravino and Smirak and just me, and I know I'm not going to talk a lot. So this is what I want from the show uh, from you, Gravino, just um, really – um, two things. I, I, you, you, you're a very thoughtful man. You're a theologian. And I often feel very uncomfortable challenging bishops, challenging the Pope, challenging the hierarchy, but I'm compelled to do so. And then I do so. But as a good Catholic, I feel guilty before, during, and after doing it. I would like to, to ask you, as someone who wrote a book on the Pope, confronting yeah. the Pope of Suspicion, this must be something that you've thought a lot about. And mm-hmm. your, your, the, the eternal destiny of your soul matters to you and others. And so yeah. you you've must have given yourself some guidelines. You probably didn't com, come prepared for that question, but I suspect this is something you've thought a lot about. That's one question. Yeah. Uh, um, you know, that's one question I would like to ask you. And then the other is this idea of the great reset, this Catholic yeah. reset just something for this audience, which is not just Catholics around the world. We have a big audience around the world, maybe half Catholic, only half an American, only half Catholic. Um, mm-hmm. But I think stopping the Catholic reset is important for everyone, Catholic or not. Um, and what can we do there? And then that's all. Yeah. I, 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 that's what I'm looking for. And I'm sure John yeah. is going to have a lot more questions for you. But I just I want to make sure <laughs> well, those two questions don't get lost. Okay. Can I jump in for a second just to frame it? Because I think your questions are connected, and this might help orient readers who don't know who any of any of us are or anybody in particular. John Gravino, who we have, who Jason has on, and I'm John Zurich and tailing along, wrote a book called "Confronting the Pope of Suspicion" two years ago, I believe, and he's done a, a, a renewed version of it, um, and it's available on Amazon. And in the book. He basically accuses Pope Francis of teaching heresy in his letter, Amoris Laetitiae, which can be translated the joy of love, um, of teaching uh, at least one, maybe more than one, heretical statement that is not accurate about the Catholic faith, that contradicts the teachings of his predecessors and even of the Bible, um, and that this teaching has to do with sexual morality, and that the, the heresy which the Pope is repeating in in Morse is the same heresy which, when it was taught in Catholic seminaries, is what launched the sex abuse crisis in the early 1960s. So that heresy uh, is one that, if adopted throughout the Church, would put us 100% in line with the world, with Caesar, Mammon, and Sodom. Caesar, Mammon, and Sodom and it would take away any distinctive witness the Catholic Church had and make it a perfect tool for globalists of the kind that Pope Francis seems to be consorting with. So I just wanted to tie it together to the re- listeners before we started so they knew why this mattered. And with that, I probably won't have that much to say except for a few questions. Yeah, but that was a great uh, summary, uh, Zmirak. <laughs> I call you John Zmirak. That was a great summary. And um, I couldn't have summarized it better. 
do you want me to, hey, Jason, do you want me to answer one of your questions right now? You had your, you want to make sure that we yeah, get them in, so why don't I just answer one of them? Yeah, maybe the first one, because I think a lot of folks are going to feel uncomfortable with just the whole topic. And Yeah, and people I, are going to be uncomfortable with it. There's no doubt that people feel like, um, in fact, I'll give you a little uh, snippet. Uh, I mean, I was, um, there's a local Catholic radio station uh, here in Raleigh, North Carolina, and uh, because of a lot of, because of the exposure I'm getting from you guys, uh, they contacted me and they want to do an interview with me. But the interviewer was kind of nervous about the whole thing. And we did a prayer. And I got, I almost had the sense that she was doing an exorcism on me to make sure that, you know, my head didn't start spinning around or any horrible things because it seems to uh, a, uh, a Catholic that, you know, criticizing the Pope is, you know, has got to be, um, you know, not acceptable. It's got to be dangerous. At least it's, it's got to be dangerous to be criticizing the Pope. Um, so, yeah, this is, so we do have to uh, explain this. So what I would say and what I told her was that, first of all, confronting the Pope of suspicion was not originally about the Pope at all. Okay. I was writing, when I was doing my research, I was trying to answer a question. And the, the question was, where, how, how did we get this sexual abuse epidemic? And um, the reason why it was published, think about it this way. If I was really writing a book about Amaris Letizia, why did I wait until 2019 to do it? The book, uh, Amaris Letizia, was published in 2016. Okay, think about that for a second. It wasn't originally intended to be a book about Amos Latizzi at all. I started doing the research for this book um, after the summer of 2018 when the Ted McCarrick scandal uh, broke open in the, in the news and it re- resurrected the sexual abuse scandal. And a guy by the name of Dr. Paul Solon, a Catholic uh, sociologist, he started crunching numbers and stuff like that. And what he found was something very, very interesting. And that is that there was a very close association with the increase of incidents of sexual abuse with the rise of what he called gay subcultures in seminaries. Okay. So he, and he said, you know, this is, you know, the, the uh, pattern of suggested uh, causation and so he was, his research basically was pointing to the seminaries and saying it was gay subcultures in the seminaries that uh, were, was the main cause of the sexual abuse scandal. The one thing that his research did not uncover was where did the gay subcultures come from? So that's what I was poking around doing. I was trying to find out the answer to that question, and that's when I discovered all of this heretical theology in the 1970s. But to my shock and my horror, as I was reading, I I said away, I found all of these um, out of publication uh, heretical textbooks and I got them and I was uh, reading through them. And what I realized was, wow, I've I've read this somewhere before. I realized that Amra Fatizia had just recycled all of this garbage from the 1970s. And then I realized that's really what my book is about, because this is what caused the sexual abuse scandal, this heretical theology from the 70s. And Pope Francis is reintroducing it. He's um, 
He's reviving the very heresies that caused the sexual abuse scandal. And so, in other words, what I'm trying to say is, I never, I, this book was not even originally about the Pope. It was originally a defense of the Catholic Church because what does, think about, think about it for a second. What does the world say caused the sexual abuse scandal? What do the, what do the new atheists blame the scandal on? Uh, they, and, and the movie Spotlight, for, the, for that matter. They blame it on celibacy. They blame yeah. it on church teaching, right? Yeah. So I was saying, no, 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 no. It's not, it isn't celibacy. The, the heretics of the 1970s threw out celibacy. It was, you know, what they were doing instead was getting in touch with their feelings. And um, because of Freud, because of what Freud, Freud taught us, uh, it's dangerous to deny your sexual feelings because it'll make you psychologically uh, unbalanced and uh, repressed and uh, depressed and all kinds of other horrible things, right? That's what our seminarians were being taught in the 70s. So, Gravino, I want to ask and you so a, a, they, really, a really pointed question yeah. here then. And, and sure. because this isn't all Catholics, I hate to say even some things I've, I've heard from my priest friends. So what you're saying is they weren't being celibate. Priests, they, 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 That's exactly right. These priests aren't being celibate. And I've heard this from friends of mine who are priests, that this That's, homosexual yeah. subculture is most priests are not being celibate and i pray that is not true but that's what you're saying that they're just not being celibate so if they're not being celibate how could celibacy be the cause and i always thought if you looked at the christian science monitor study comparing abuse rates of abuse to the catholics to other denominations uh we're actually lower but not that far off um uh, so it seemed to be celibacy couldn't be what it is that's that's exactly right. Um, the fact is, there's a sexual abuse problem in the world, and the incidence rate uh, is much higher in the world than it is in our uh, own um, Catholic Church. And also, uh, like you said, Protestant dom- denominations have a sexual abuse problem too. Their ministers are not uh, under a vow of celibacy. So it is an absurd... Um, and it's an absurd argument to suggest that celibacy in the Catholic Church or church teaching was what caused the sexual abuse scandal. It didn't. The abuse scandal took off once we started abandoning uh, Catholic teaching, once we started abandoning the Bible and following so-called science, which is really scientism and propaganda. Once that started happening, that's when you start seeing um, – the uh, epidemic of sexual abuse breakout. That's the reason why. So in other words, what I'm saying here is, no, I'm not attacking the church. I'm defending the church. Okay. I'm, I'm showing that in the book, in front of the Pope of Suspicion, I am not uh, in any way uh, blaming the church for what happened for the sexual abuse. I'm blaming these heretical theologians for abandoning church teaching. That's what caused the sexual abuse scandal. It wasn't that we were too Catholic. It was that we weren't Catholic enough. That was the problem. And I just, and I'm, you know, I was stunned myself when I realized that Pope Francis was actually reviving this stuff. So, but the fact is, that's just the way it is. And if you look at the history um, that I uncover in my book, it actually makes sense. 
the reason why is because the Jesuits were actually trailblazers in the 60s and the 70s, uh, promoting and advancing uh, these heretical theologies. And you just have to look at uh, Pope Francis's ordination date to understand, 1969. He was ordained in 1969. Pope Francis is a product of this heretical theology. All he's doing, basically, he dusted off his old seminary notes and said, hey, this would make a great encyclical. That's basically what we've got in Amoris Laetitia. But when you challenge... No, I don't know. Did I, I mean, in other no, words, no, what but, I'm trying to say is I, I'm trying to defend but, the church. No, and no, unfortunately, no. I have to defend it against the Pope. <laughs> well, no, you know, it's, um, it's... I understand that completely. I was on the Alex Jones show this week defending the church, and probably a lot of people would think, I didn't know, was that defending the church? And I'm like, yeah, I was defending the church and on a platform that a lot of people consider to be anti-Catholic. But I had to address mm-hmm. some real concerns. But but um, yeah. as a theologian, what, but do you do you pray about, are you thoughtful of, how do I do this? Um, you know, do you, um, have you yes, had internal I'm, battles and how, how have you wrestled with that? I'll be honest with you. I haven't had too many internal battles. Um, <laughs> I think one of the, <laughs> I mean, I'm just telling you the truth. Yeah. I think some of it has to do with my personal experience. Um, Google the name um, Father Ted Janos sometime. Google that name, Father Ted Janos, and you will find the name of the man who uh, trained me to be an altar boy. Okay. And that's probably the reason why I didn't lose too much sleep uh, going after the people who are promoting this stuff. Okay, Father Ted Janos was one of the early uh, uh, priests who were uh, who was arrested for sexual abuse. I don't know how many of my friends he molested. I have no idea. I fortunately was spared. I was spared, but I have. If I have any, if you want to know what keeps me up at night? It's me thinking about the night that Father Ted Janos took me and a bunch of other altar boys to Century City to see the opening of Star Wars in 1977. Because when you read the police report about uh, Father Ted Janos, it was his M.O. He took altar boys to the movies, and then afterward he molested them. It is, you know, and I can't even say this, you know, can I say that it's by the grace of God? All I can say is it's a small miracle that I was not the last one dropped off uh, that night. And I, you know, I wonder, I thought about reaching out to some of these guys, you know, you know, what happened? Does anyone want to talk about it? The, the fact is, that was his M.O. And what I'm trying to say is, I feel like I have a, um, a personal stake in this. And uh, so I think that, you know, when I, when I just read, when I read the garbage uh, that passed for theology in the 1970s, it boils my blood. And the thought that Pope Francis can promote this stuff uh, sickens me to no end. So anyway... Maybe well, that's the reason why I don't lose any sleep over it. Well, you know, the reason I ask is because I don't lose any sleep over it, but I, I feel I should, and sometimes I wonder, am I not thoughtful or careful enough? And that was a question yeah. that I was also going to ask you, which is clear in your writing, in your work, that there was, you know, in filmmaking we call it the inciting incident, the call to adventure when you experienced a great act of injustice. Whenever you see somebody yeah. on some journey where they're being a hero, hero's journey being very brave – um, you, there's something there, something happened. And so now we know yeah. what it is with you. It's the, the thoughtfulness to your friends that you probably witnessed fall apart all around you and didn't know until later yeah. what was the cause of it. 
Yeah. So I, I do, um, you know, I think that that probably has a lot to do with it. I, and I also what I'm saying is it's when, when you know that you're faced with evil, okay, um, the, um, what I'm saying is this is a clear-cut situation. It may not be, it may not seem so obvious or clear-cut to other people, to, to uh, Catholics looking from the outside in. But what I'm saying is from my vantage point, this is clear-cut. And I'll tell you the other reason why this is clear-cut. Um, when I first published my book a couple of years ago, it was controversial. People uh, kind of wanted to stay away from it. I'm grateful to uh, Zmirak. Uh, for uh, being brave enough to go out there and say, you know, this is a book that people need to read. Um, but remember, I wasn't completely on my own. Um, the Dubia Cardinals preceded me in drawing attention to um, the, the problems in Amorous Letizia. And those, the, the questions that they raised about it were pointing to uh, it's uh, Amos Letitia's position on um, intrinsic evils, uh, that it appeared to the Dubia Cardinals um, that uh, Pope Francis was denying uh, this teaching of the Catholic Church, that there are intrinsic evils that, that, are, that are such that they are never acceptable in any situation or circumstance. There, there's no uh, situation that could ever justify them. Pope Francis very clearly rejects that teaching in all throughout Amorous Letizia from beginning to end. Uh, he does that. So, so that was the other thing. I knew that um, I had the Dubia Cardinals <laughs> on my side on this as well. So, and they are very uh, respected. Uh, in fact, Car one of them, uh, Cardinal Carlo Cafaro, who has since passed away, uh, he was actually John Paul's Pope John Paul II's hand-picked um, theologian to be the founding president of the John Paul II Institute on Marriage and the Family. This guy, this was a top-notch, world-renowned theologian, one of the Dubia Cardinals. Uh, so, I mean, this guy, uh, it really, his credentials are Im impeccable. So, you know, there are a lot of people out there who might defend Amos Letizia, but they really can't hold a candle to Cardinal Carlo Cafara. So I knew that I really I was on solid ground uh, when I did this. And the thing that was disconcerting, if you go, the thing is the Dubia Cardinals, and, and maybe Zmirak would like to uh, kind of refresh the audience's memory about what happened, but basically these Cardinals um, issued questions to Pope Francis about um, Amorous Letizia, and the and the Pope ignored them. So what they did was then they turned around and published the uh, the questions. The Pope uh, never answered those things. And then unfortunately, two of the Dubia Cardinals died, and uh, the other ones uh, became I don't know. They changed. I don't know. They never followed up. They uh, Cardinal Burke said he was going to follow up, and he never did. So so uh, Zmirak, would you like to uh, refresh the audience's memory about? Um, uh, who the Dubia Cardinals were and uh, what they, you know, what they were, uh, the role they played with regard to Amos Letizia? Sure. Um, those, there were four prominent Cardinals. Cardinal Burke is the one I, whose name I remember. Do you, rem uh, do you remember the names of the others? 
Uh, I think one was Meisner, but the one that stands out the most in my mind is uh, Carlo Cafara. And I think Brand Mueller, too. So I think those are the four. Um, okay. Yeah. Well, the Cardinals, uh, in, in a very respectful way, bending over backward to defer to papal authority uh, to a degree that I considered almost servile, because I think there's a sense in which every bishop is equally the teacher of the faith. Um, and certainly in the Middle Ages, cardinals were not this timid when popes uh, st- went astray. Um, they asked, well, given all this, these reasons we cite in, all, in this letter, that all these things you've said in Amoris Lachite that appear to be heresy, can you explain to us why they're not? How do you reconcile the things you're saying with things past popes have said just 20 years before? and the constant immutable teaching of the Catholic Church for 2,000 years, and the New Testament and the Old Testament. Holy Father, please explain to us why this isn't heresy, because it looks like heresy to us. Yeah. Is that a fair summary? Oh, that, that's, a, that's perfect. That's really, that's it. And that's what I was, and, you know, my point was, the, one of the reasons why I didn't have a lot of, reservations about what I was doing was because I knew I was taking their position. I was, I was sort of amplifying their questions in my book. Well, you know, historically, this has happened before and a lot more aggressively. Pope John XXII was teaching heresy, not ex cathedra, obviously. Nothing Mm -hmm. is, virtually nothing is ex cathedra. So let's just set that aside. The Pope is only infallible. John, can you, John, can you explain to people what ex cathedra means? From the throne of Peter, it's sort of like when when a Supreme Court, it's like, okay, when the justice of the Supreme Court writes on behalf of the majority, then his opinion becomes binding constitutional law, as unfortunately happened with Roe v. Wade. When Justice Scalia talks to a reporter while golfing, that does not become part of American constitutional law. When he has questions during a case, that doesn't become part of constitutional law. The, the closest equivalent I can give to ex, an ex cathedra statement is when the Supreme, a Supreme Court majority issues a ruling, that becomes official constitutional jurisprudence and binding law. Everything else the judge says is his opinion. That's the same with the Pope. When he doesn't teach ex cathedra and he doesn't just repeat previous infallible teaching, he is as fallible as you or me and is not entitled to absolute deference. Um, unfortunately, there's a line in Vatican II which suggests the contrary, which suggests that even when the Pope spouts off his opinion, we should try to make our consciences conform with it. And I think that line in Vatican II is wrong. It's in Lumen Gentium, and it's just wrong. It suggests that whatever papal opinion is, we have to try to convince ourselves of it. And if we don't, if we can't, we should shut up about it. That was a very destructive line that conservatives put in the document that has come back to bite us. Uh, because now people are saying, oh, you have to defer to him. He's the Pope, as if he were the, the Delphic Oracle. Uh, <laughs> well, let me give you an example. Pope John XXII was was giving public, address, public uh, speeches, teaching an outright heresy. The heresy is called mortalism. John the 22nd got the, the bright idea that when you and I die, our souls go to sleep until the general resurrection. 
So the saints, the angels, Mary, I don't, I don't think Jesus, or maybe only his human nature, are all asleep, and there's no point in praying to them because they're just in limbo, and actually mm-hmm. unconscious, until the general resurrection. Mm-hmm. His cardinals were mortified and appalled, and they begged him to shut up. He wouldn't shut up, so they imprisoned him and wouldn't <laughs> let him give any more talks. That's what should have happened to Pope Francis, but probably the Swiss guard should have at some point rebelled, imprisoned him for heresy. He should have been tried for heresy and, uh, you know, whatever the verdict, let justice be done. But um, that didn't happen. Instead, you have all you know, all zombie Orthodox Catholics, oh, I guess the Pope said it, so it must be true. And if it contradicts a previous Pope, the Holy Spirit must have changed his mind. It's all so confusing. But at least I'm obedient. Yeah, for all the good that's going to do you on Judgment now those, Day, pal. Those conservative yeah. Catholics sounded a lot like John Lennon to me. <laughs> just, yeah, they sounded very similar. Sounded to me like members of the members of the Church of Scientology. Yeah. Um, yeah. So, so John, uh, can I say something? I yeah. loved your analogy. I thought the anal- that is the clearest explanation of ex cathedra ch- teaching that I've heard. And I think it also helps to illustrate a point that I want to make in this talk about the severity of the crisis the church is facing because of what Pope Francis is doing. In other words, your comparison of an ex cathedra teaching to a ruling by the Supreme Court. Because what you're doing there is you're showing that uh, the Pope, well, first of all, the Pope is the head of, of state of the Vatican, right? So the, the Pope has this political role also. This is what is going to bring us into uh, danger, as far as I can see, because of the kinds of things that are being bandied about uh, very high up in the church. What I'm talking about is, you remember in March 15th, we had the, um, there was a dubium posed, uh, I guess, to the CDF about whether uh, the church could give uh, blessings to same-sex marriages. Gravino, okay. can you explain to folks what a dubium is? Yeah, a, a dubium are, is are, Latin are for the word, yeah, yeah, dubium is a Latin term, uh, basically meaning question. It comes from the word doubt. Uh, but it's basically it's just a, basically a church term for meaning question. So, so somebody, I'd love to know who it was. Somebody wrote a question to the CDF saying, "Can the church give uh, blessings to same-sex marriages?" And then the CDF, and, and, the CD, and then again, it, for most Catholics, even they're going to know what's the CDF. Yeah, the Congregation for the Doctrine of the Faith, which used to be the Office of Inquisition. So yeah. They were much more colorful a few centuries ago <laughs> than they are now. But um, so basically, they're kind of in charge of uh, maintaining uh, the uh, purity of the faith, so to speak, uh, the it's purity Ratzinger. of our teaching. It's Ratzinger's old job. It's what he did under John Paul II. So yeah, that's it, right. He's the Pope's number. He's the number two in charge of doctrine for the Church under the Pope. That's right. That's right. And. And in the CDF's defense, uh, this office, they did say, no, you can't do that. You can't give a, a blessing to same-sex marriage because you can't bless sin. 
Okay, so that is a sigh of relief for us that uh, they ruled correctly. And according to news reports, you know, Pope Francis uh, went along with the CDF on this. Okay, but subsequent reports that appeared in the National Catholic Register and also America Magazine, well, but they, they lean left anyway, but not National Catholic Register. There were subsequent reports that said that after the fact, Pope Francis um, distanced himself from that initial CDF uh, ruling. And that's very troubling uh, because it, it opens a Pandora's box for the church if Pope Francis waffles on this. But regardless of you know, where the Pope stands on this or the CDF stands on this, the German bishops are going ahead and uh, issuing uh, blessings all over the place for same-sex marriages. But uh, the, the, the connection I want to... Yeah, go ahead, John. Or Mirac. And, yeah, they're not being disciplined by the Vatican for doing so. If exactly. You hold, if you hold a Latin mass without permission, you're going to get in trouble with your bishop. If a bishop were to, were to give a speech critical of mass immigration, the Vatican would discipline him. If a, if, a, if a bishop were to meet with Donald Trump, the Vatican would swoop down like a Stuka dive bomber on him. But That's these right. guys are blessing sodomy at Catholic altars with relics of saints in them, and the Vatican is doing nothing. And, what, and that speaks volumes, doesn't it? I mean, where is Pope Francis? Why his, his silence is, um, isn't it a sense? Isn't it approval? It sure seems to be. Um, so, and, and this is the danger for the entire church, because um, think about what the church looks like from the point of view of the secular state or secular authorities or the secular media. The pope is like a king or the president, and the bishops are kind of like his congress, right? Um, and so when they make statements or proclamations, that's like law. These, these are the, they are the rulers of the Catholic Church, if their actions are interpreted as permitting blessings for same-sex marriages, um, and another issue that I'll raise uh, in a minute, what is going to happen to our local parishes if people start showing up, if active homosexuals uh, approach to uh, a pastor and say, we would like a blessing? What do you think is going to happen? Right. If the pastor says no, somebody's going to call the Civil Rights Commission. Someone's going to go to court. That's and right. These people won't ha won't have the protection of the First Amendment for their freedom of religion because their religion. It'll be clear their religion is already doing it. And something like this happened before. Catholics were not allowed by the U.S. Army to claim conscientious objector status to the Vietnam War because their bishops were behind the war. Yes. So those guys, that, that's actually real world consequences here. Yeah, that's a, that is a, that's a perfect parallel, Mirac. And um, uh, that's the danger of this whole thing. Uh, and I want to bring up one more uh, point. The intent, John, it's the intent of the whole thing. This oh, that's, Pope, that's, yes. This is Pope Francis's effort to, to use the secular state to force the LGBT agenda on the church, and the church will say, well, we didn't have any choice, just like they did with, with closing masses during COVID and with the uh, aborted baby vaccine. Oh, we have to go along. It's within Caesar's purview. 
Exactly. So Pope Francis is not going to issue an ex cathedra statement approving of homosexuality. That's right. I think I think because he still has some superstitious fear that God might exist. And he doesn't want a meteorite to hit him from the sky. The little 2% of him that still fears God might exist uh, Mm -hmm. is going to prevent him. That just shows you how little papal infallibility protects us from anything. It means that when a pope wants to teach heresy, he won't say the words ex cathedra. He'll just ruthlessly implement it throughout the church. That's one – I think that's one explanation, but I completely agree with you that the pope isn't going to do it. Uh, we are going to uh, lose our uh, uh, First Amendment rights, not by something that the Pope does, but by what he chooses not to do. He's not going to step in and defend uh, the true teaching, just like just like Zmirak said. Um, and also, Carita Amazonia, which is another papal writing, um, also supports this interpretation. Carita Amazonia basically said, um, that local, it's, it's basically a document on cultural relativism. It basically says that every local, um, every local jurisdiction, it could be a country, it could be a, um, it could be an ethnic group. They all possess some sort of unique, uh, cultural wisdom, some unique cultural heritage, and that has to be respected by the church. And he even goes so far as to extend that to doctrinal matters. And I, I talk about this in an article on my website. But basically what he's doing is he's saying that local jurisdictions have more authority than either the Pope or the Vatican. And so what he's doing is he's radically decentralizing the church. Ironically, what that, though, John, ironically, yeah. Jeff, though, in fact – when it cuts the other way, he, that's not going to be true. If the, the American bishops wanted to, uh, to announce that Joe Biden shouldn't receive Holy Communion because he supports abortion and infanticide, and the Vatican stepped in and told him to shut up. So, that, so let's yeah. not pretend this is real decentralization. This no, you're is purely right. opportunistic on the part of Pope Francis, Peronis politician that he is, Machiavellian atheist that I believe he is, as a means of liquidating Orthodox Catholicism. Period. Very good. I mean, actually, it's kind of like uh, what the Democratic Party is doing in our country. Um, freedom for me, but not for thee. So he's, he's granting autonomy to uh, local jurisdictions that he likes, <laughs> basically, uh, is, is what's going on. That's, that, a, that's a very good point. That have utility, anyway, that have utility towards his goals. Yes. Yeah, if they're useful, exactly. if it's useful in dissolving... Uh, orthodoxy, then yeah, then it's that. You know, I think that's where his interests lie, which is it's quite. It's sorrowful. kind of like it, it's the term. The political term for this is anarcho tyranny. Anarcho tyranny, where you allow anarchy where it supports what you want, and you impose tyranny where you where something happens that you don't like. For instance, yeah. in Kenosha, Wisconsin, let the Black Lives Matter rioters destroy the bis- the black business district of the city and loot stores. But if Kyle Rittenhouse uses an AR-15 to protect himself against a mob that's trying to kill him, you, 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 put hi- you try to put him in prison for life for murder, a narco-tyranny. So the Pope has grasped the principle of a narco-tyranny and yes. he's using 
Yes, that's a, that's a, I completely agree with what you're saying there. And I want to introduce one more, uh, one more danger policy that's coming down the road. Uh, it's not just same-sex marriage blessings, but it's also uh, Eucharistic, it's also reception of Holy Communion for active homosexuals. Um, and, and this was a report that appeared in uh, LifeSite News. The incoming president of the uh, John Paul Institute on Marriage and the Family, which got completely reconstituted by Pope Francis, he just put in place uh, puppets, uh, his own puppets there. So the new president um, just uh, published an essay, a pro-LGBT essay, which he said, by the way, was the result of Amoris Laetitia. So he published. So the incoming president of this institute. Um, uh, he publishes an essay that's pro-LGBT, and he says it's the result of Amrith Laetitia. And one of the policies that he recommends is that active homosexuals should receive um, uh, the Eucharist. They should receive Holy Communion at Mass. Um, if that catches on, this is more flagrant than even same-sex marriage blessings, because a same-sex marriage blessing is probably going to happen in a private ceremony. But Holy Communion is going to be done at Sunday Mass in front of an entire congregation. So, in other words, let's yeah, go ahead. Candid, let's be candid, John. The Eucharist is probably being celebrated by active homosexuals in many, many cases. So. Oh, absolutely. What, what it absolutely is. is. But what I'm saying is the difference yeah. now is going to be... It's going to be official. Yes, I know. Yeah. It, not only is it going to be official... But they are going to march down the aisle in front of a full congregation wrapped in the rainbow flag, right. holding hands side by side like they're a married couple, and demand to receive Holy Communion. And if you don't do it, okay, you are going to have a mob, a media mob, you're going to have opportunistic politicians down your throat, you're going to have lawyers all over the place suing you and saying, how dare you defy Pope Francis? Who runs this church? Do you or does the Pope? And that's the danger. That's the danger uh, that we're facing right now. And it's just, it's right around the corner. And so this, this point. and this is the Catholic. Homosexual cabal. Go ahead, Jason. And so Sorry. this is what you're talking about, the Catholic reset. We're just, that's it. We're just going to be swamped. It's going to be so fast then on the other side of it, it's going to be normal, and there'll be no rem no one will remember what normal actually is. That's right. So the way, and, so yeah. this will be a great way to get rid of any Orthodox pastors, any Orthodox bishops who, in good conscience, cannot cannot obey this immoral, depraved law, uh, and they will. This will give the Pope an opportunity to remove them for disobedience. And yes. of course, yes. zombie Catholics. Who, We'll say, you must obey the Pope, whatever he says. Yeah, I want to do the other thing is Pope Francis doesn't have to do anything because our courts, our courts are basically going to take care of all the Orthodox priests and bishops who defy uh, this kind of sacrilege and blasphemy. Uh, they're going to be, they're going to end up in jail. They're going to end up like a masterpiece cake shop, right? Up to their eyeballs in lawsuits and never going to be able they're never going to have an ounce of – they'll never be able to celebrate a mass again. I, I want to do a little bracket here because I, inevitably someone's listening and they have same-sex attraction 
They're they're Catholic. Yeah. They they wrestle. Yeah. They struggle with this, and it's just like we're shooting arrow after arrow after them. But but I think this shows an absolute abandoning of young or of Catholics with same sex attraction, just utterly abandoning them to the abyss, um, confusing yeah. them, leaving them lost. Uh, do, do you want to talk about, about that for a little bit? Because I feel so much that they're being used. That people with same sex attraction are being used. And there's no thoughtfulness to their soul. So it makes you hope that these people are atheists. It, 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 mm-hmm. it, you know, you hope that they think there are no eternal consequences for these decisions. Right. Um, do you want to address that? Because I'm always thoughtful when we talk about this. Because I know Zmerak's not thinking about it. You're not thinking about it. And we're not thinking about people with same-sex attraction who long for the Eucharist, which is a really wonderful thing. And we're not yes. obsessing on their sins, and we're not obsessing on their attractions. Like, we all are right. addled with our own problems that we have to sort out in confession ourselves, right? We're not talking about That's that. It. Well, we're talking... Yeah. Oh, go ahead, Gravino. I'm sorry. No, no, Jason. Yeah, I do think that that's an important point. I mean, we're certainly not saying that people with same-sex attraction are not uh, permitted to uh, receive the sacrament of the Eucharist. Certainly, they they are. The Church only condemns as mortally sinful uh, the behavior, right? Um, and so it isn't uh, it isn't a sin to have um, sinful temptations. We all have sinful temptations. Right? Which, if we acted on our sinful temptations, we would go to hell. Uh, but before that, we would not be allowed to receive uh, the Eucharist unless we went to confession first. So the, yeah, well, so the no, point is, it, anyone clear. with same-sex attraction can go to communion. Yes, go ahead. Yeah, well, if we act on our sinful temptations, which we all have done, we have confession. And what they're doing is That's they're right. telling these people there's nothing to confess. There is nothing to confess. This horrifies me that... You know, people who love God, long for the Eucharist, want to be in communion with Christ in the church, um, are going to go into the confessional. My daughter told me, she goes, Dad, I went to confession, and the priest told me that I, I, I was sinless, that I had no sins. And she goes, aren't you happy? I said, yeah. That's a, she, she's, she's, she's like, he said I was immaculate. I said, yeah. You guys know Joe, Joe Chiambra, right? Yes. Yeah. He's a heroic soul who was molested by a priest and told that God made him gay and fell into the gay lifestyle during the 80s and watched his friends die around him of AIDS. Yeah. Came back to the Catholic Church, but kept running into priests telling him, no, this is okay, you just need to find a steady boyfriend. And and he was he was so scandalized by the takeover of the church by the homosexual cabal that he's actually become Russian Orthodox now in an effort to find some place where all the priests aren't gay or pro-gay. And yeah. sad, but there was nothing I could tell him. He said every time he went to a mass, he was being re-traumatized. Yeah. It's, I mean, it is a, it's a terrible disaster, but um, both of you make the, the, the right point, which is that the church never excluded uh, homosexual people uh, from the mass. There's just that there are rules that, that we have to follow, and they certainly have access to the sacraments. But like Jason pointed out, uh, the first one that you have to avail yourself of is the sacrament of reconciliation, confession. Um, uh, but that's true for anyone. Uh, this isn't just for homosexuals. They didn't make confession for homosexuals. Confession is for sinners. It's for all of us. 
Um, if I miss Sunday mass, I'm in mortal sin. I can't the next Sunday just show up and expect to receive Holy Communion unless I go to confession first. So the rules are the same for everybody. John, the, this started, of course, with couples who were divorced from a Catholic marriage without an annulment. Those are given out with scandalous ease. Pope Francis yeah. made it easier to get one of those rubber stamps. Um, yeah. This is for people who got remarried outside the church and are objectively committing adultery. Pope Francis started by loosening the rules for them. And I said at yeah. the time, the only reason for this because these people are going to communion anyway. The only reason for this is to make room for homosexuals so as to take away our First Amendment rights and make pastors vulnerable in court. I said this when the Synod on the Family was happening in 2015. I wrote that. And I am always hate to be right. Well, that's prophetic. Because that's exactly, that's exactly what's happening. And I believe it's at our doorstep uh, right now. Uh, and I've, you know, alarm bells, and I think I've told both of you this, or at least I've written about it. That's the reason why I got on my book and added a chapter. As soon as I heard Pope Francis say, hey, guys, I think 2021 is going to be the year of reflection on Amherst Letizia, I said, oh, no. This yeah. is the year. This is the year it all happens. Because this is not a guy, this Pope isn't interested in reflecting on anything. He's not interested in the conversation. This is the Pope that fired everybody from the John Paul Institute on Marriage and the Family wants to have a conversation? I don't think so. I heard they're going to rename it the Playboy Mansion East. Is that right? <laughs> well, John, that would be a more uh, apt name for it, wouldn't it? I don't think um, that people... John, I want to ask you something. I don't think they'll be Sorry. nearly as attractive and there won't be as, nearly as much fun. And there won't be women. There won't be any women because nobody nobody wants them. Um, I've got a question, John. I, the, to me, the most headline grabbing and uh, objectively important part of your book is where you show a direct correlation and a very likely causal relationship between the adoption of psychology, Freudian psychology, in place of the Christian understanding of original sin at seminaries, and that those same seminaries that adopted particular textbooks, you have their titles of the textbooks yes. in your book and the years they were adopted and the names of the seminaries, and those were the seminaries that produced the vast numbers of child molesting priests. Do you happen yes. to remember the names of some of those seminaries and the names of those textbooks of the and, and, you know, the 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 incidents of sexual abuse that happened after these priests had been told to follow their bliss wherever well, I can give you I can give you a couple of names but as far as I know the kind of the kind of hard data that you're talking about I don't know that it exists or if it does exist it's being covered up but what I do know from for example there are anecdotal accounts of there's a seminary in Texas for example um, that uh, Rudy Cause attended. Mm -hmm. And um, I believe it was this story. I can't remember if I got this from, uh, I either got this from Michael Rose, uh, Michael Rose's book, Goodbye Good Men, or from another book. I got, I can't remember where I got this, but the story is that, so Rudy Cause is at a Dallas seminary that's teaching Andre Gwinden's book, The Sexual Language. 
that book, the sexual language, is one of these books that says the Bible is invalid as a guide to sexual morality and we need science, it says. And by the way, scientific research, haha, shows uh, that pedophilia is not harmful to children. Okay, Rudy Cause attended a seminary that used Andre Gwinden's book. And who was one of their guest speakers? What, who, who was one of the guest speakers at his seminary? Paul Shanley, uh, who was, you know, he, I think he holds the record for the most molestations by a Catholic priest. I'm not sure. But Rudy he Cause was an activist. Rudy Cause racked up quite a few, too. And here's another thing. This was testified in court. Rudy Cause's ex-wife testified. She told, because he had been married before being a priest outside the church. His ah. wife told the seminary that he had a thing for little boys. They ordained him anyway. Wow. That, I mean, that is just, it is mind-boggling. But Paul Shanley was actually a vocal activist for the Man Boy Love Association. Uh, and just imagine inviting somebody like that to be a guest speaker at a seminary. And then this, this gay cabal was taking over the priesthood 20, 30 years ago. Yes. Yeah. And, and even before that, um, you know, going back, going back to the 60s. Um, there was one I seminary, actually, yeah. the seminary Shanley attended. Also, his seminary class had like four molesters in it, the same seminary class from the early 1960s from a, a New England seminary. Really? And I do tell the story, I believe it's, um, there's a California seminary um, that um, I'm thinking, I'm pretty sure, uh, I'm thinking it's St. Anthony's, but I can't remember, there's probably a hundred St. Anthony's seminaries, so I don't want to, you know, uh, I'm, I'm not clear on the detail. I can't remember. I think it's in Santa Barbara. It's a seminary in Santa Barbara. And what's interesting about this seminary was that they received uh, some in-services from a man by the name of William Colson, mm -hmm. who was Carl Rogers' uh, right-hand man, the whole humanistic psychology movement. And um, what happened there... Uh, I can't remember, it was a high percentage. It was a small seminary, but I think most of the uh, most of the priests there ended up, there was a school attached to it. Uh, most of the priests there, or a high percentage of them, uh, were found, were convicted of a child abuse after they received training from psychologists. Those same psychologists took on the IHM nuns in Southern California, and within two years, the nuns were pairing off into lesbian couples and performing Wicca ceremonies. Um, now, I, th I think there's something to be said for the fact that most of these people did not have religious vocations or priestly vocations in the first place, and that yeah. the huge numbers of priests and nuns we used to have in the 50s were probably wrong. There were it was a glut. Uh, there was there were artifacts of gay men looking for something useful to do with their lives. And mm -hmm. women at eight, women who aged, hit age 23 and panicked and decided they were old maids and joined the convent. There were tons of people. The church was interested in numbers, like Ford Motor Company. And we wanted yeah. to ordain huge classes. And so we took qu quantity over quality. So I think the fact that 
six six months with a psychologist is not going to turn a normal person into a pedophile. We were taking in a lot of really broken, damaged people and, and not looking too closely because we wanted to pad the numbers. So the, really, the psychologists were the match that lit the fire. Oh, absolutely, they were. Um, the other thing that is going on here that creates the epidemic, um, and Michael Rose tells this story in his book, Goodbye, Good Men. It isn't, you know, the people that are, come out of seminary uh, aren't just whoever was uh, uh, taken into seminary. There was an active process of, uh, an active winnowing process. And what they were doing, the people that were running the seminaries uh, at, at the really bad ones, was they were identifying uh, people that were orthodox and throwing them out, right? right? Because they were too rigid. These guys that were praying their rosaries and uh, going to Eucharistic adoration, these guys were considered to be unfit for the priesthood. So many holy and legitimate vocations were actually discouraged and uh, tossed out in favor of people that uh, were uh, uh, okay with this new heretical uh, uh, sexually liberated theology. So, In other words, if other people were making the admissions decisions, we, we wouldn't have had uh, the horrible epidemic that we have right now because a lot of these guys would have been identified by sane people and thrown out. Right? That's right. Instead... Instead, the, the wolves were in charge of the lambfold. And they right. Were I'm, sure, I'm sure you guys read the story about Ted McCarrick and how he uh, recruited some cute uh, Stua flight attendant. Uh, he, he picked up some flight attendant in an airport and made him a seminarian. <laughs> Can you believe it? No, I didn't hear that. Hey, little man, want, want, want to be my parish assistant? Oh. I, can show you my, yeah. I can show you my scapular. Well, you know, you know, uh, in Hawaii, the parish I went there, there was a a young man, transgender. I don't know, I don't want to be rude, um, who I had seen around, and then ne next thing I hear that this person was going off to seminary, and I said, "How in the world did this happen? This is so yeah. bizarre." And, um, you know, that makes you wonder how how much. Did the hierarchy know? I'll tell you this, Gravino. I've said this to Zmerak. When I first moved to D.C., I was not a Catholic, but I, you know, I worked around a lot of Catholics that worked for apostolates. And the talk at every Theology on Tap was McCarrick stories. Every 22-year-old intern at the USCCB had McCarrick stories. We all knew about the house wow. with the, the you know, uh, one bed missing yeah. and all that. We. I, I I knew about that, so I don't buy that what? a single bishop in the country didn't know about that. If I knew about it, as someone who wasn't Catholic, working around low level staff, uh, Cardinal O'Connor yeah. knew about it. Cardinal O'Connor knew about it and was complaining about it. Um, so let let's step back for a second. This 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 Cardinal McCarrick, who picked most of the bishops we have now in power, who molested a boy he baptized as an infant and harassed him and abused him for years, who used to curl up in bed with handsome seminarians he had hand-picked. This is the man the Pope sent to negotiate his secret alliance with communist China against the West. Just wrap your head around that, my friend. Oh, right. He is the Ribbentrop that was sent to sign our Molotov-Ribbentrop Pact 
with the genocidal maniacs in charge of communist China. That's right. where the church is today. It's awful. And, and by the way, Jason, the uh, account that you gave of that um, on the Alex Jones show was amazing. It was powerful. Um, I mean, I was paying close attention, especially that comparison that you were making between the difference between John Paul and Pope Francis and their treatment of communism. I mean, really uh, a powerful account. And uh, I mean, I just, uh, it's just so, it's just so sad, you know, to recount, uh, you know, these, these stories about what's going on, the corruption in our church right now. Well, what drives um, me nuts is the- just the decadence, the thoughtlessness, the selfishness, you know, um, this woke ideology yeah. that, you know, Pope Francis brings millionaire NBA players and billionaire NBA owners that are, have Nike sponsors that partner with Nike that use Uyghurs that pick cotton, literally pick cotton as slaves and knit together yeah. shoes. And we're silent. It's startling. I'm just, you know, when it all came home and how, how foolish, how juvenile, how decadent uh, it all is, is when I saw Bishop Barron strumming his guitar, singing a song to Bob Dylan the day after the news broke that his brother Bishop, his priests and seminarians were sent off to prison. I mean, these guys are—they're really—they're really unbelievable, and um, it's this obsession. Again, we're not the ones obsessed with uh, sexual attraction and people's personal struggles with sexual immorality. This is their obsession, and in their obsession. Yeah to try to unsettle what is settled and will never change. Their obsession with this not only confuses young people uh, here, uh, yes. it it just, we've utterly abandoned the rest of the world. We've, you think, we've talked more this year of the, 20, uh, of the COVID shutdown about all of this nonsense than we have talked about all of the good Catholics that died without last rites, without communion, without the Eucharist, without their family around them, uh, the food insecurity and starvation around the world, uh, Catholics being slaughtered in Nigeria, uh, in Ethiopia, and in Egypt, um, and, and uh, being arrested and sent off to re-education camps. And we're not talking, literally, we're not talking about any of this. We are obsessing on Zoom fatigue and... Our sexual, uh, uh, you know, our problems. It just is bizarre to me. It's absolutely and the Vatican, bizarre to me. And the Vatican, instead of standing firm against a vaccine that was not tested on animals, but was tested on cells stolen from unborn aborted babies, the Vatican is saying it is a positive moral duty to be vaccinated. And the neoconservative Catholics at the Ethics and Public Policy Center actually issued a paper saying there was no moral issue at all about the abortion links of vaccines. Imagine if Joseph Mengele had cloned Anne Frank and all the vaccines had been made from Anne Frank's stolen DNA. That is where we are. We are in a morally equivalent situation of using Nazi science from Joseph Mengele's experiments to create the vaccine. And where is the Catholic Church? encouraging, ordering people basically to take the vaccine. And the same wonderful neocons who justified the Iraq war are justifying this. They used to at least be reliably pro-life. Yeah. Um, yeah, mean, abortion, just... we've allowed abortion to be their beard. They, 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 they stomach 
they grimace and 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 say they're pro life, you know, as a beard. But look, John, I don't think they care if the child's out of the womb. I mean, you're the one that brought to the world's attention. I'm a Asmirak. Uh, you're the one that brought to the world's attention Sarando going to China and addressing a conference of organ harvesters. That's right. Bishop Sarando, the number two in the church on Catholic social teaching and science, went to China to tell communist Chinese that Pope Francis loves the communist regime, is going to recognize it instead of Taiwan, wants to visit China. And he gave this address to the people in charge of China's organ harvesting program, which Forbes magazine documented, steals the hearts and lungs and eyes out of the living bodies of political and religious prisoners like the Uyghurs and Christians who won't join their patriotic church. Pope Francis sent Bishop Sarando to tell these ghouls, these vampires, these cannibals, how wonderful they were. Yes, and which which um, Catholic hierarch was it that said that China uh, better uh, reflects Catholic social teaching than the United States? John, you have to have him one of your articles. That was Bishop Sarando, and that's that where was. I came up. That's where I came up with the idea that the Vatican was in, was not doing a, an agreement with China. It was doing an alliance with China against the capitalist West, against Donald Trump, against American conservative pro-life voters, against the West. And here's what I think is really going on. Pope Francis claims to love the poor. He likes them the way people, pet hoarders like pets. He wants to have as many of them as possible. Uh, he doesn't like middle-class people with their own property, with their own guns, with their own free speech, who assert their opinions. He wants people to be poor, helpless, docile campesinos, while he and the World Economic Forum and Bono and Katy Perry live in a hacienda. And if you have a hacienda, you need campesinos. You don't need patriots and stalwarts and minutemen. You need docile, obedient people who are beaten down by poverty. And that's why Pope Francis hates capitalism, hates fossil fuels, hates economic freedom, personal freedom. He hates borders that allow people to maintain order in their countries and hold people responsible for the way they vote. No, no, if you ruin your country, we'll just go to another one, like like locusts going from one field to the next. Yeah. Pope, I mean, we are dealing – the only reason I'm certain Pope Francis is not the Antichrist is because – He's so obnoxious and so dumb that the elect are not the elect are not fooled. Nobody is fooled. The people who support Pope Francis now were always fake Catholics from the beginning. They were maybe yeah. they, they 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 said they liked Pope Benedict, Pope John Paul II, but that's just because they were opportunists. Anyone who is not now appalled and outraged and and vocally so about Pope Francis, was never one of us anyway. So we know the number of Catholics in the world is really much smaller than any of us suspected. Yeah, but John, didn't he once, once, uh, quote-unquote, sneak out of the Vatican at night to give somebody a sandwich and then do a press release about it or something? (laughs) Yeah, right. I'm sure there was a photographer there to uh, capture the whole event, right? Yeah, no, in the first couple of months of his papacy, he literally... You know, snuck, quote unquote, snuck out and gave a guy a sandwich and then did a press release on it. But not a word for the Christians in Iraq as they were being slaughtered by ISIS. Not a word. Pope, 
I mean, I, I won't compare Pope Francis to the Pharisees because they actually did follow the law. Maybe they were hypocrites, but they did follow the external law. But they blew trumpets when they gave alms. Many of the things our Lord says negative about the Pharisees apply to Pope Francis. But really, I think the better comparison for these left-wing Catholics is the Sadducees. The Sadducees had discarded large elements of Jewish belief. They didn't accept anything after the five books of the Torah. They didn't believe in life after death. They were the theological liberals of their day. And they were collaborators with Caesar. They were the ones who made the deal with Caesar that they controlled the temple. They made money off of it. They were the go-to people to negotiate with. If, if the Romans needed the Jews to do something, they would get the Sanhedrin run by the Sadducees to do it. So I, I think it, it's an insult to the Pharisees to compare them to Pope Francis and his crew. They are the Sadducees. They are King Herod, the Roman puppet. These people are the puppets of Caesar, Mammon, and Sodom, and they are liquidating the church from inside. Yeah, I, you just said it perfectly. Well, I think uh, that's sadly, sadly the truth. And but, and I think, uh, I think the rest of the world has suffered more than we have, uh, yeah. to be sure. That's an understatement. Uh, but I think that we are going. We're about to face our own political persecution. Uh, some of us already have. John, you've been censored, or Zmirak, you've been censored from Twitter and so forth, uh, as have another, lots of conservatives. But it's coming our way, uh, I think, uh, sooner than we realize. We're not going to have good priests and good parishes that we can resort to because they're all going to lose their parishes. We'll, have, yes. we'll end up going to liturgy at or to underground chapels, or Orthodox parishes because they're they're not they're not going to be squeezed the same way. They don't have a central authority who can order them to do this. So I think that they might be left alone for a while because they're a smaller target. Um, yeah, the whole brittle shell of legacy Catholicism that we see, which is sort of the, the prayer tent for the Democrat Party, mm -hmm. uh, it's going to collapse. It's going to collapse all around us. Um, you, you'll see, I mean, these parishes that comply with this with their, will have their rainbow flags, and yeah. no one will attend them. They will be exactly like Episcopal churches. Uh, mm -hmm. The Episcopal church is now a holding operation for architecture, and that's what the Catholic church will be, a holding, arch holding operation for slightly less elegant architecture than the, than the Episcopal path. And what is left of the Catholic church will look much more like, you know, the, tra the traditional subculture used to look. Um, it will be a kind of underground church with no pretty buildings, no official seminaries, uh, no schools. It will just be an underground movement, and that's yeah. what's going to be left. And, and, and the way we're, yeah. Then you'll get some good priests, because being a priest won't be a nice career for the for the dumbest, gayest member of an ambitious Irish family. It being a bishop won't be a way for someone some effeminate guy who's not smart enough for the Democratic National Committee and not talented enough for Broadway to finally live in a palace like the Disney princess he always secretly knew he was. No, being a bishop will be more like it was when St. John Neumann was running around America to plague-ridden cities saying mass in tents. Yes. I think it, it's going to be like um, St. Isaac Joves. <laughs> Especially if you have to go, can you imagine trying to uh, bring the gospel to the Pacific Northwest at this point? 
point. Anyone want to be a priest in uh, Portland? Right, right, <laughs> right, right. So unfortunately, there's there's nothing hopeful to look forward to. Um, we have to say John Paul II and Benedict failed at one fundamental thing of their job, which was picking good bishops. They did not. They were fooled. They 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 believed what people told them. They gave us McCarrick. They gave us Whirl. They gave us Bernadine. They, yeah. they weren't willing. They were, I think both of them naively believed that liberal Catholics were fellow believers who were confused on a few things, as opposed to they thought they were Simon Peter, you know, uh, who denied yeah. Christ in a moment of weakness. They didn't realize that they they were Judas. They were Simon Magus. They yeah. were people who had fundamentally grown to hate the faith and wanted to bring it down around their ears as revenge yeah. for making them feel guilty. Yes. I think that even some statements by Pope Benedict um, really indicate that, uh, that they were completely dumbfounded by uh, the, um, the depths to which uh, the church had sunk, that they were not aware. Um, because Pope Benedict, I know he, he, he stated somewhere, I can't remember what publication it was or what interview it was, but he was just saying that he couldn't even wrap his mind around the idea of a priest um, abusing a child. You know, uh, he's saying, like, what did you think you, when you became a priest, what were you thinking? You know, how could you be, how do you reconcile being a priest and doing something like that? I think that the whole it just was unfathomable to Benedict and also uh, John Paul II, I'm sure. It, it yeah. really is. In fact, I probably, if you were trying to, I would imagine, and Jason, you're, you know, you're in the, the movie business. I, I bet you if you were, somebody were to come, if, imagine it's 1960-something and somebody says, you know, I've got an idea for a movie script about um, priests who uh, rape kids. You'd say, no, 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 too unbelievable. You know, at least in the 60s, you would say something like that. Um, I really, it's just, it is impossible to fathom, uh, you know, what we are learning about, about the church. Um, yeah, or, so, uh, but or here uh, we are. Or make a movie about a pope that's silent as his priests are being, and bishops are being arrested by tyrants. An absolute yeah. utter silence. Not- or, or, or imagine um, uh, an Islamist, extremist organization uh, rapes its way across the end of a plane, slaughtering and destroying first century Christian communities as it goes and not a peep from the Vatican. Oh, come on. Unbelievable. Absolutely unbelievable. Yeah. Or a celebrity bre- a priest who, who maybe and we, we've been on a long time and I want to wrap it up soon, but is it unfair for me to say that when I see James Martin speak or read his books or watch Bishop Barron's, and this is, I don't mean to be uncharitable, but I think we have learned that trying to be, char- you know, sometimes we've been too charitable, and it's, we've allowed children, and, and young men especially, to be hurt, but when I read yeah. uh, uh, James Martin's books, or I listen to him speak, or I see Barron, uh, you know, playing Bob Dylan in his, his cheesy little videos, um, I mean, are they not instruments of grooming? Can they not be useful tools to groom a, a young man for a young Young, young boy for abuse? I think you're right on. I think that's exactly right. And um, what we're seeing right now, 
uh, is that Father James Martin has been invited to uh, Catholic schools up in New York somewhere to teach the students how to be more accepting of gay people. Now, the thing is, it's on the surface of it, it sounds, it's how we, I mean, of course, we need to be, we need to love everybody, of course, but that's not, you know, anyone who's heard a James Martin lecture knows that that's not what James, that's not what Father James Martin says. Father James Martin teaches that homosexuality is okay. You know, he's one of the modernists who says um, the Bible got it wrong because they just didn't understand the science well enough. We need, we need modern science. We need Masters and Johnson. <laughs> We need a sexologist. We need Alfred Kinsey, a child, to interview people who molest infants and not report them to the police. And, yeah. and, and, and do doctor statistics. Uh, I remember Kinsey was cited to break down all our social mores about sexual morality, and he faked his own statistics. He, inter he, he interviewed ex-prisoners and people in prison to show that 4% of men were gay. Well, it turns out it's closer to under two. He interviewed prostitutes and just listed them as unmarried women. He purposely yeah. falsified. Those statistics were like Nazi race science. They were completely false. And the mainstream media has never reported that they were utterly falsified. And that's the kind of propaganda that you find in these theology textbooks that are used to justify every kind of sexual perversion imaginable. And it's supposedly in the name of science. It's, uh, it's unbelievable. Gravino, in your book, um, your first book, uh, The Immoral Landscape mm -hmm. of the New Atheism, it was striking because I was an, don't judge me, but I was an Ayn Rand objectivist atheist for, for much too long. I mean, I think we all, most people are for a year and a half, but I, I wasn't a yeah. Randian until my late 20s. And uh, I went in the service, and then after the service, I went to college. was an atheist, but I was very pro-life. And I was looking for, uh, you know, I was looking for a ground for morality. And I was coming to understand that sort of my libertine ways were destructive and very hurtful. Uh, not so, you know, I wasn't so thoughtful to what I was doing to myself, but just to others and how I was hurting, you know, women especially. And I remember my senior year, of college reading Freud and reading the very uh, section that you quoted in Civilization and its discontent about any limits to our sexual desires as being only for weaklings. Only weaklings would submit yeah. themselves. And I remember at the time thinking of myself a very strong man, thinking I would have bounced Freud, you know, off a wall. And um, and I and he's the weakling. And I and I understood when I read that I was offended. Because I was already grappling as an atheist with, you know, if it's consensual, it's fine. And, and then coming to understand that, nah, that's not really true. Um, that's not true at all. And I had to find it out through ex experience. Is And I mean, I guess your, your answer is going to be both. But when I look at the, you know, when I look at the hierarchy or, or the leadership in Catholic institutions, Catholic teachers, principals, I, I, I scratched my head. And I, and I think they think about sexuality the way I did as a 23-year-old. But by the time I was 28, I learned the hard way that this is just, these are lies. And so I want to be charitable, and, and I think maybe they're just coming from a position of naivete. They don't really understand how much pain and 
hurt and suffering um, they're causing. And do you think that's the case? I mean, clearly there there, there are those predators. Is maybe a James Martin somebody who's just been chased his whole life and he's just so naive um, and he doesn't really understand what he's promoting is causing a lot of uh, people a lot of sorrow? Um, or is it something else that I'm, and that I can't wrap my mind around a man, his age saying things so foolish. Yeah. Well, I mean, I agree with you and I thought the same thing myself is that what I hear these, uh, priests saying and, uh, these apologists for, uh, all of the sexual liberation is that they do sound exactly like, uh, me and all of my friends when we were, uh, in college, Right and uh, drinking uh, way too much and uh, not, not, very, uh, <laughs> uh, not very smart, really. Uh, so, yeah, so you wonder, how come these guys, how come we were able to grow up? We didn't have the benefit of all these theology classes. How is it that we managed to grow up and they, they didn't? That's an excellent question, and I don't know the answer to it. I don't know, you know, what makes James Martin tick at all. I have no idea. Um, you know, I would only, I would only be speculating. Um, I have one thing I would, yeah, go ahead. My theory is James Martin is straight. He's only being gay for pay. (laughs) He wants to be the next Joel Osteen. And he looked at which part of the market had the most money, most disposable income and found it was gay men. So he decided to pretend to be gay. I think he's going to be outed as a straight celibate before he dies. That's an interesting theory. I think you are 100% serious when you say this. Yeah, I don't want, I I, I don't give him credit for even being a sincere gay activist. I think he is 100% about the money. There's going to be a Jimmy Swaggart moment when somebody finds him at a Eucharistic Adoration Chapel. He'll He'll be outed praying in Latin. And it will come out that uh, he's only been doing this for the for the money, gay for pay. Well, by the way, if, if, <laughs> if that were the case, if he were a straight celibate, I would be so forgiving. I've had friends who are like, you know, I married my wife and, you know, we were we were each we met in high school and we were each other's first. And, you know, I think maybe we should just let our kids get out there and do all the things we didn't do and sow their wild oats. And I'm thinking you are naive and foolish, but I forgive you. It's understandable, right? But it's it's like if someone had been through the ringer and then looks back and then just says, well, let other people go through that same ringer, you, 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 yeah. you know, you're like, what? No. How could you think that or say yeah. that? So, John, you've just given me a little, <laughs> I don't think you meant to do this, but I'm going to cling to he is straight, he is celibate and chaste, and he doesn't He's just real- doing it for the money. He wants to be the, the Joel Austin. For, for the gay market. And the stakes aren't that high, right? Because he's he's been chased his whole life and he's naive. <laughs> he doesn't really understand. No, 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 not naive. Not naive. Machiavellian and cynical just wants to make money. Yeah, okay, but you got to he hear me out here. wants to make money. But you got to hear me here. Okay. But, but the key is that he is, he went in the seminary and is a seminary as a young boy. He's chased. And so really the stakes aren't that high. So what's the big deal? Let him have some fun. Let me make some money. That's what I'm going to settle on so that I can show him some charity. <laughs> right? Like so if he understood do you know but he, but he couldn't be believing. I guess that's he couldn't actually be a believing Catholic because he wouldn't want people to linger in mortal sin. I remember as an adult convert 
my priest said to me after my first confession, he said, never let the stain of mortal sin. If you go out to a nightclub and yada, 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 that very next morning, you better be sitting outside the confessional. Do not let mortal sin linger for a second. And so I would have to say that maybe James Martin, for me to continue to have charity for him, would also have to be uh, a Christian, I mean, I'm sorry, a celibate, straight atheist. Atheist. Well, that's the most charitable interpretation for Pope Francis, is that, I mean, really, the least malevolent reading of Pope Francis is that he's an atheist who found himself in a position of power to over an organization that he, he thought was evil, and he thought it was his duty to humanity, to the proletariat, to liquidate it from within. That is the only way we can read him as a sincere person acting on his beliefs. I, I can, I've got one more. I'll throw out a theory <laughs> I've, I've thought about. Um, I don't know about them being atheists, but what they clearly are is modernists. And so I do believe that they take this pop psychology stuff very, very seriously. And so what I believe, and so the way they get around the priest scandal or the way they sort of resolve it, they know in the back of their mind, they know that in seminary that all of those guys were discouraged, all the, the ones that, um, all the pedophiles in the priesthood, they know that it was their theology classes that encouraged them to uh, pursue their sexual desires, that that certainly was a contributing factor. But the way they, um, the way they continue to justify their modernist uh, theology, which is heretical, is by saying, well, that's just those unfortunate guys over there because they have, uh, because they're following their natures. But look at all of the rest of us, they say to themselves, who didn't do those things. They're, in other words, what they do is they exonerate their modernism by pointing to the fact that not everybody became a child molester, right? <laughs> I honestly think that that's what they're, they're, what they're saying is, look, most of us, they're, they're going to say most of the priests didn't become child molesters. Most of them just became active homosexuals. And what's wrong with that, they, they say to themselves. <laughs> like, I, I got to tell you, I don't see how the celibate priesthood will ever be restored. I, I, I actually think the Orthodox may be right about this. At this point, anyway, I don't see us getting enough psychologically normal young men willing to be priests uh, who will get through the filters uh, that are set up against them. I, I foresee, I don't know. I mean, what's gonna, what the church is going to look like in 50 years is impossible to imagine. It's going to look nothing like what it does now, that's for sure. Yes. I mean, it already doesn't look like, it already isn't the Catholic Church. I mean, I, that's, I hate to say it, but that's the fact. The fact is, is that it's already not the Catholic Church. We're already facing a church that isn't Catholic. Yeah, when, when I was somebody, back, back in the 2016 election, I was comparing Mike Pence and, and Tim Kaine. Tim Kaine was the, uh, is it Tim Kaine? The uh, yeah. vice presidential, yeah, Hillary's vice presidential nominee. Yeah. He, had, he had drifted away from the Catholic Church, married an evangelical woman, and joined her church, which is quite orthodox and conservative. Tim Kaine was part of the Jesuit Volunteer Corps and now goes to a Jesuit parish 
in the D.C. suburbs. And NPR did a show about it and talked to his pastor, who had no problem with him being a pro-abortion activist. Which of those people is better off spiritually? The one who is at an evangelical church that's at least pro-life and against sodomy and, and against pornography and against all the greatest evils of our day? Or right. the one who goes to a nominally Catholic parish with an older, effeminate Irish, Irishman who's a Jesuit, uh, where there's a rainbow flag hanging up over the sanctuary. Um, I, you know, I wrote seven apologetics books over the years. I, if somebody mm -hmm. told me now he was going to become a Catholic, and I've heard this has happened to me, my stomach drops. I think, oh, God. What kind of priest mm -hmm. is he going to get? What kind of advice is he going to get? What are they yeah. going to teach him in RCIA? Yeah. It's so depressing. It's the yeah. saddest thing that happened. It's the saddest thing in my entire life is what has happened to the institutional church before my eyes, especially when we got our hopes up so high with Pope yeah. John Paul II and Pope Benedict. It's as if they were never even pope. It's as if they hit a reset button, and we went back to 1976, the last waning days of Pope Paul VI. Everything John Paul and Benedict did seems to have vanished like smoke. Not only that, John, uh, but also EWTN. You know, you had John Paul uh, in the, the papal, on the papal throne, and you've got Mother Angelica at EWTN. I mean, really... On the face of it, the church looked robust and yeah. uh, vibrant and healthy and strong, right? Uh, what we didn't know was the church that we were paying attention to was being ignored in seminary. There was this whole secret underground going on in seminary. Um, they weren't watching Mother Angelica, and they weren't reading uh, John Paul's encyclicals. They had their own agenda, and that's what has undermined the church. They were reading Anne Rice's erotic novels. Yeah. And they said, oh boy, were they excited when she was Catholic for an hour and a half. Remember when that happened? Yeah, oh, yeah I really? do. Wait. She was, Anne sponsoring, Rice. Yeah, she was she, sponsoring Latin masses, but, all, but still couldn't accept the teaching on homosexuality and never withdrew her pornographic novels from publication. Well, I That's think what I she thought was, you know, if yeah. she became Catholic, we'd be so excited to have her. In exchange for her becoming Catholic, we would abandon all of our, our beliefs and uh, say whatever you say. <laughs> and then when, when she that jumped, didn't happen. She, she jumped ship too soon. <laughs> yeah. Right, she did. Now, you know, and um, my frustration is, as I'm listening to you talk, and this is as an adult convert, I should say, I know the Catholic Church is not a human rights institution. Um, but the hardest thing for me has been just this year, the bishop seemed not even to flinch, to blink. My own bishop, the Bishop of Honolulu, was not even communicative with us as we as people weren't getting last rites, confession, communion for months and months and months, and there was no even real communicating with us. Uh, I have his cell phone. I would text him. I would hear nothing back, and it was it was that was disheartening. But I used to believe that the leftist Catholics just disagreed with me on abortion and economic freedom, and that's it. That they, you know, mm -hmm. they were going to be there, but that they're utterly silent on all of the hell that is erupting all around the world. Absolute yeah. crickets, silence. When you bring it up, they're offended. Like, why do you always distract when I talk about the trouble of affluent 
uh, white kids that go to Jesuit schools in American suburbs and all the troubles they're having trying to identify their pronouns. And then you're going to bring up the Uyghur every time. You know, really, Jason, you think that's the problem? Imagine being, you know, having a dad who's an orthodontist and a mother who's a lawyer, and you don't know your pronouns, Jason. Think about that. This is what I get. I mean, this is practically what I get from people. And then you get Bishop Barron who exists. Let's be clear. Bishop Barron exists because all these Catholics wasted their money sending their kids to schools that 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 made their children leave the church. And now they're funding Bishop Barron, who's selling them a Catholicism that they think that they can use to get their children who left the church because the schools they sent them to made them leave. This is the game, yeah. right? And um, yes. and yet, what are we as a church doing in the sad and broken and lonely and confused world that needs the Catholic Church more than ever? But I'm like, this is the good news for me. You've got people like Father Heilman and Father Altman and... Doug Barry and Father Hallman with their show and and Patrick Coffin and Taylor Marshall and and there are all these like eruptions in church militant Mike, and life side Michael news. Voris. Michael Voris. Michael yeah. Voris. Um and 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 they're they're now they're not all clean and packaged and perfect and they're not boring like and I'm just gonna say this, I've never said this before out loud. You know, the the Catholics we were supposed to celebrate in the springtime of the faith. They bored me to death. They never resonated with me as a guy from the world. You know, I liked I liked Jesse Romero. Give me Jesse Romero. Uh, this is the, you know this is what I and give me Chesterton and Bellick. I had to reach back to that and and I would buy their talks. You know, and I'd buy George mm-hmm. Weigel's big uh, biography of John Paul the Great. And I and I'm like, was this? Yeah. What is this? Is this? Uh, did the same guy write this that wrote the uh, the driver's ed manual? You know, can we admit it was horribly written? And um, I, tried, in- I tried to watch Scott. I tried to watch Scott Hahn's videos on the Bible, and after halfway through the first one, I was ready to sign up and become an Amway salesman. Does that really seem like what he was selling? No, that's what we <laughs> I'm had. Sorry, I just I found him utterly boring. Too. Well, let's we all we were being polite. The the books. You, you, I used to have to. I would read his books with, and I've told him this actually. His face. I had to read his books with a a, a, a black marker because of the puns were driving me insane, and I would just black out all the puns. And then there would be these beautiful yeah. nuggets in there, and I would circle the nuggets. And I would have to trudge through the yeah. writing to circle the nuggets. But now what do we have in its place? Okay, all that's being washed away. That's all gone. Mother Angelica was great. Yeah. And then you'd, and you would love you'd, uh, uh, Father Mitch. And then you'd love Fulton Sheen, who has, was the most relevant Catholic ever still because yeah. he, he talked yeah. like a man to men. And that's what you get with like guys like Doug Berry and all these guys. Um, but this is the exciting thing that, like, there's erupting. And, like, you, Gravino, and Smirak, there's just people who are erupting who are like, you know, and this is where I want to be careful as a Catholic layman. I don't want to be disrespectful. I worked for a woman once yeah. who was a notorious bishop basher, and I kind of felt like maybe her motives weren't pure, and and she yeah. wasn't always as thoughtful as I would have hoped she would be. And And I want to be thoughtful, and I want to check my motives, but at the same time, I am angry, and I try not to be affected when I communicate in writing or in speech or on a podcast. Um, uh, you know, yeah. it's to me why create a persona. If people don't like you, then don't create someone they'll like. They're not going to like that person either. Um, yeah. So this is why. I mean, I don't think I think that uh, it's bleak, but I think we're going to stop this. But it's not as bleak as we feel. I think we're going to stop this great reset, this Catholic reset. Am I naive? 
um, I don't think you're naive. I, I think, I mean, I believe um, that the Catholic reset is going to be stopped. I don't know how that's going to happen. Um, I just, I do believe when, you know, we have Christ's promise that he's not going to abandon the church. And I, I can already see his eyes rolling as I say that. But um, even, but it's going to be bad. I mean, it's, even though Christ isn't going to abandon us, um, it's going to be bad. And I can give you, let me, can I just give you a couple of concrete things that I know are happening in my own diocese that tell me that this is, this is really about to go down. I just, can I, because I really think, like, if you want, one thing you mentioned, Jason, is you want to talk about practical things that uh, we can do or something like that. One thing I would, I would, um, I want, would want to draw your listeners to is for them to be paying attention to what's going on in their diocese right now. Because let me tell you what happened in my uh, diocese. Um, right after uh, Pope Francis announced this year of Amoris Laetitia. What happened was, and you might have seen it in something that I wrote, but um, I found out, somebody sent me a tip at my website that um, a very, the, the most liberal, um, heretical Franciscan parish in our diocese uh, was contacting other uh, parishes and setting up uh, secretly pro-LGBT ministries uh, unto unsuspecting parishes. There are right now, there are um, LGBT ministries, pro-LGBT ministries operating in parishes that never had them before in, in my diocese. And I believe what these are. Um, it's not a coincidence that this happened right after Pope Francis announced the year of Amrifatitia because as I explained in my articles in my book, Amrifotitia is a green light for uh, gay liberation, since it um, echoes the sexual liberation heresy of the 70s. So as soon as that happened, as soon as uh, Pope Francis, uh, you know, signaled the green light, uh, progressive parishes uh, got busy spreading their heretical um, propaganda and so what we've got right now is we've got a number of pro-LGBT sleeper cells in my diocese right now. And, uh, you know, nothing has happened yet, but they're waiting for, I'm telling you, they're waiting for something. And I have, my hunch is, is that that March 15th same-sex marriage blessing didn't go the way they wanted it to. But they were hoping for some kind of affirmation there. And, uh, you know, we would have had same-sex marriage blessings breaking out all over the place. Or if not, we would have been getting hit with lawsuits. And I think the next thing is going to be uh, communion for, communion for uh, active homosexuals. Uh, so now we've got these sleeper cells in my diocese. And I believe that once they, they feel like they've got a green light for communion, they're going to start uh, showing up in an open way. Uh, at our uh, local churches uh, demanding to receive Holy Communion. And so what I'm telling you is be on the lookout in your own diocese uh, for this kind of activity. Yeah, they're going to show up at the Latin Mass parishes. They're going to show up at the conservative parishes. Any par They're going to be like kind of theological suicide bombers. Show up, 
holding hands, after kissing your boyfriend at the kiss of peace, you march up to the altar to the priest, not just the lay Eucharistic minister, to the pastor if possible, and see if he gives you communion. And in good conscience, he really can't, but and the courageous ones won't, and they'll end up losing their parishes. This will be another excuse for liquidating what's left of the of of the legacy of John Paul II and Benedict XVI. And who's going to yeah. be crushed in all this? Is I'm and maybe I'm strange, but I'm a, a Gravino and Samaria because I'm listening to you talk. I'm thinking about the poor souls with same sex attraction. It, it, they are not. When I hear pro LGBT, what I think is anti people with same sex attraction, anti their souls their life, right. their eternal destiny. Either, yeah. if they're pro-LGBT, if they're really pro these people and they think the Catholic Church is a hateful, oppressive organization, they should do what I did. When I was in college, I wrote in my journal, one of my goals in life was to, quote, destroy the Roman Catholic Church because I had a vision of the church. I thought it was a, a dark and deceptive and evil mm-hmm. institution and I was like, okay, I'm going to order my life against this church. I was an atheist, but I was honest. I didn't join the church and lurk around and, you know, try to insert Ayn Rand object. You know, I, and it was in wrestling with the church that I became Catholic by the grace of God. Um, so either if you're in, if you see the church as a hateful institution, be honest. And if you're pro LGBT, do join all those organizations that openly engage in battle with the church. If you don't believe in the Eucharist, say so. But if you believe yeah. in the Eucharist, why in the world would you tell someone that you know is a mortal sin to take it? If unless yes. unless you thought your politics was more important than their eternal destiny. Leo Strauss said yeah. that a good statesman is someone who values his community more than his own soul. These people value other people's souls uh, less than their community. So other people's souls are yeah. less important to them than their politics. This is these are loveless, vicious, cruel people. At worst, at best, they're just nihilist, atheists, and everything is politics. That's it. Jason, what I hear you saying, what I hear you saying, and this is very important, is you know if we are going to um, put up a fight against this, then we need to start a movement. But it's going to be very important for us to be the ones that define what that movement is about, not what. Um, the heretics define us because, of course, they've already defined us as bigots and homophobes and so forth and so on. And this is not an anti-homosexual movement at all. It's a pro-freedom movement because nobody's trying to limit uh, gay freedom. All we're trying to do is we're trying to stand up for our Catholic faith. We're trying to say, hey, we have a First Amendment right also. If you have certain beliefs, if, if you want to be Christian, and you want to practice homosexuality, you've got a few hundred denominations of Christianity to choose from. Why are you picking on the Catholic Church? Yeah, well, you know, that's not even most important to me, guys. What's most important to me is to think for generations to come, there may be young people uh, living and dying in a state of mortal sin. Yes. And never even thinking that they should confess. Never even yeah. having a chance. This is what makes well, me the most yeah. upset about all of this. Well, yeah, I mean, there are different there are different levels of this movement, right? There's the political level, which I would say or argue is a pro freedom movement. It's a movement that says Catholics have rights too. Conservative Christians 
uh, have First Amendment rights also, but you're also, but part of that First Amendment is our right not only to practice our faith, but also to teach it and to preach it. And so we have a right um, to speak out against homosexuality as a life choice, right? We have a right to explain our teaching that condemn homosexuality along with a lot of other uh, sexual sins uh, and other sins. So, so yes, you're right. I mean, we definitely, we haven't given up the vocation to preach the truth. We've got to do that also in the interest of saving souls. But that's part of our First Amendment right, which is under threat right now. They want to take that uh, away from us. We have a right, right to practice our faith, and we have a right to preach and teach uh, and communicate our uh, faith um, in the public square. And, what I mean, I think that's our movement. What they want is to equate opposition to homosexual intercourse with opposition to interracial dating or opposition to racial integration. Everything has to be modeled on the civil rights movement. Every yeah. evil has to be equated with racism because that works politically. If they can say politically that we're just like the, the segregationists, they win. And that's because the last moment of moral unity in American culture was when mm -hmm. the civil rights movement used the legitimate heritage of Christianity to say that racial segregation was evil, and Orthodox Christianity agreed with them. So the left agreed with Orthodox Christianity. We were all together on that, except for some, you know, a few genuinely hateful people. What they did then was they dropped Christianity, like a used napkin, and yeah. applied the same logic to feminism, gay rights, and pedophile rights. They did that too for a while, then that yes. kind of blew up in their face. Ironically, I read a really interesting article that the mainstreaming of pedophilia was actually proceeding throughout the 70s and 80s. And one of the things that prevented it, that, that, that held it back, was the sex abuse scandal. The stories of these priests molesting kids were so appalling that it actually mm -hmm. set back the cause of pedophilia for, by 20 years. So the church, did, the church did us a service after all. Yeah, yes. I was going to make a point on that, and I can't remember. Then, I forgot I, what my point was. Going we, to be. Had, we were both left speechless. Well, guys, here's a point <laughs> I have to make. This show's gone long. It's almost been two hours. I um, I was the keynote speaker. I was I, got, I had the privilege of giving the commencement address to the homeschoolers here in Texas on Sunday. They gave me a very large gift card to the best restaurant in New Braunfels, and I promised my family I would take them out to dinner tonight. When you're a homeschool dad and you get that gift card, you got to do that. Um, so I want to just maybe. Do you guys want to end with uh, just two points? I think this was a great show. I think next time I'm going to have Zmirak and Gravino on separate because you both have – you're so interesting and there have so much to say. Um, but this has been one of my favorite shows I've ever done. Um, do you guys have anything you want to say as we as, before we head out the door? Well, guys, if you want to read, read more of me, go to stream.org where I write five columns a week. <laughs> and I'm currently working also on my book – God, Guns, and the Government, about the theological basis for our Second Amendment gun rights. So please t check that out when it appears around Christmas time. And That's awesome. And, okay, I, uh, I blog at newwalden.org. Um, but the one thing I would like to leave your audience with is to be vigilant and uh, pay attention to what's going on in your diocese and be active and talk 
to and form associations with um, uh, like-minded, strong, uh, Orthodox uh, Christians and Catholics and um, start writing letters uh, to uh, pastors and bishops and, um, and have, you know, you know, renew your prayer life and your sacramental life as well. Well, I really appreciate it, guys, and I look forward to having you both on, John. Smirak's on all the time. Gravino, I hope I hope you can become a regular guest. I'd love to, and i got to say that I had so much fun talking to both of you guys. I've, I've uh, communicated via email and Internet and so forth, but it was great to actually be able to talk to you guys uh, in person, so to speak, <laughs> over the phone anyway. <laughs> yeah, I look forward to getting right, to meet you in person, guys. Gravino. All right, God bless you guys. Aloha. All right, okay, everybody. take care. All right, everybody. Um, what a great interview. See, these guys, these are the type of guys I want living in my neighborhood so I could just hang out with them. Um, I wanted to have Gravino on and Smerak on to talk about the Great Reset, the Catholic Reset, something Gravino kind of coined that phrase. I've been using it a lot, um, and I see it coming. And, you know, what I what one of the things that makes me uncomfortable, I don't know if uncomfortable is the right word, but... Uh, it might not seem this way about me because I speak freely, but I, I am really thoughtful of, of people's feelings. And, um, you know, the problem with this great Catholic reset that is looking to change our teachings on human sexuality in one false swoop to bring it completely in conformity with the gods of the city is I have two problems with it. One is it makes us inward facing, um, and uh, instead of as being a church looking outward, we should be looking outward and being thoughtful of the other instead of obsessing on our own selves. So the obsession with sexuality is I had a young man uh, born into one of the most prominent wealthy families in America um, tell me I didn't know what it was like, you know, to be um, underprivileged. Uh, you know, I was a teen father, high school dropout, last in my class. Worked my way through college in the night shift. My mother had me when she was a teenager. Yada, yada. But I didn't know what it was like to live in this country as a person of, without privilege. Um, and he did because he was gay. And I'm like, yeah, you're nuts, bro. You're nuts. And see, that's kind of the whole problem with the whole culture. That as we obsess on these issues, we are not being thoughtful to the truly other. We've turned this whole country, our whole entire country into a Jesuit high school in an affluent suburb. We become selfish, decadent, we're self-obsessed. And, you know, we're fiddling as the entire world is on fire. That's the one thing that bothers me. And then the other thing that does bother me is, is they're sitting there and they're forcing a debate on things that will never change, right? Um, will there be a married priesthood? That could change. I'm not going to get into those for those of you who aren't Catholic, but there there can be a married priesthood. That's a discipline that could change. There will never be women priests. There will never be same-sex marriages. Uh, you will never be able to receive communion in a state of mortal sin. And so when we force these arguments in areas where people who are not well-formed, who don't know the faith, they can feel hurt. Why shouldn't I be able to receive communion? Well, for this, you know, look, I've grappled with sexual sin in my life like everyone has, and if I committed a mortal sin, I can't go receive communion. Does the church, why? Because I have, uh, because I don't have same-sex attraction? Does the church value me more, actually? I think it, does it say, well, Jason, you would need to go to confession, but if someone has same-sex attraction, they don't. 
uh, if someone's, I'm, I'm sorry, obviously same-sex attraction isn't a sin, but if somebody is in a, a same-sex relationship, sexual relationship, um, they can receive communion while in a state of mortal sin, but but I couldn't. Heterosexuals couldn't. Does it mean the church values us more? Or does it mean it's just utter chaos and thoughtlessness and we're just allowing the world to play us like we're just being blown around by the ideologies of the age that are, have, that are not even, you can't even wrap your mind around them as a thoughtful Catholic, right? This, is un, this doesn't make any sense. It doesn't even make any sense. So that's one thing I think we need to be clear as Catholics. When, I, when he was talking about pro-LGBT, it made me upset because I'm like, they are anti-LGBT. They're anti-people of same-sex attraction if you're coming from the Catholic perspective. If you're Catholic, those groups are working directly against the interests of those folks. Now, if you're not Catholic, you don't believe the unchanging and unchangeable teachings of our church, and you think our teaching is bigoted, then you can stand outside of the church and point out all the ways in which you think we're bigoted. That is fine. I would love to have those discussions. Um, but what you cannot say is loving is that you hold to the church's teachings on the Eucharist, on sin, on human sexuality, and then just say, yeah, but, you know, to be up to date, to be with the times, we're just going to uh, go along to get along. Yeah, you might be roadkill in eternity, but, you know, at least my time here on earth was a little smoother. That is not loving. That is not loving at all. Okay. Now, I understand not everyone assents to the teachings of the Christian faith. Oh, I believe you need grace to do that. So um, I want to be a witness to that. But I, my biggest problem with these folks is they are utterly, utterly loveless. They obsess on us. I call it preferential option for ourselves. You know, when Francis came out early, on, early in his pontificate and said the greatest problem in the world is youth unemployment in Europe. I mean, that's bonkers. But that tells you who he's pandering to. He knew his audience, whether instinctively and thoughtlessly, or, as Mirak said, he's Machiavellian. It's very calculated. I don't know which one it is, but you can tell it's someone who has a sense of power, where power in the world lies, and you're catering to it. I myself, I think it's been clear of this show, I want to kick power in the face when power is not serving the vulnerable and not trying to stand with the truth. I'm utterly thoughtless to it. I honestly, by God's grace, don't care. Those people bore me. I was talking to someone today. They saw me on TV and they messaged me. And um, they, they, sent me a really, they sent me a really strange message. And um, it was, uh, you know, would you, would you sell your soul? Something, they, they saw me on the Alex Jones show. And it was a really creepy email. And they were like, would, what would it take for you to sell your soul to the devil? That was the question. And I'm like, that is a very creepy question. And I responded and I'm like, well, um, where I have peace, uh, what would, could he give me? There's nothing. I already have peace. So he would take my peace and he would give me um, anxiety where I have a beautiful family, he would take my beautiful family and give me loneliness. Where I, where I have the most wonderful friends on the planet Earth, that's what I have. My friends are literally the treasures of the planet Earth, as is my family and my wife and my kids, treasure, right? 
you could take my friends. What would you give me in place of my beautiful, wonderful friends? Uh, soulless, opportunistic, um, ambitious twits. I don't need those. So you're going to give me a mansion, a gaudy, ugly mansion instead of my beautiful home, little home, sweet little home. So there's nothing the world has that is attractive. I want to live small so I can serve, so that I can love. You know, look around. There is real suffering in the world. And by the way, I do see real suffering with people with same-sex attraction who want the Eucharist. I'm not blind to what James Martin, maybe at some point in his life, was the inciting incident for his whole misguided adventure, right? Um, I remember once when I saw the Rainbow Sash crew. For those of you who aren't Catholic, the Rainbow Sash crew, these guys that wear rainbow sashes to show that they're gay and they go and try to receive communion and they get denied communion. And at one time it appeared that they were going to be able to receive communion at the national cathedral, at the cathedral, uh, at the national basilica. And I went up to one of the ushers. It seemed like they had made a deal with the priest and it was going to happen. I just went up to one of the ushers and said, those guys are here to protest the mass. They're the rainbow sash crew explained to the ushers who they were. These were just some, old school Knights of Columbus guys from D.C., and it actually made national news. Um, not me, but these guys. I didn't mean to get them in so much attention, so much attention. I just said, hey, they're going to try to receive communion. I think you should go up there and say, I'm not today, guys. And they did, okay? The priest looked a little flummoxed, and the two guys with the rainbow sashes were sitting in front of me. <laughs> so I came around back, received communion, came around back, and was sitting behind him, kneeling in prayer. And one of them just began to cry. And I don't know why. Maybe it was my imagination. But I felt he was crying, not because of the politics of it all, but because he felt rejected by Christ in the church. And he longed for the Eucharist. And it, you know, it broke my heart. I felt for this guy. Um, and I want him to be able to receive the Eucharist, which, of course, it's very easy for him to do. Just right there through the confessional to the Eucharist. There you go. Um, this is what I don't want. This is what's happening. These, you know, we're seeing everything ripped apart. So I didn't even know my show was going to go in this direction. Uh, I really wanted to talk about, to tell you the truth, how we can organize ourselves against the Great Catholic Reset, what the Great Catholic Reset means to the broader community, um, and especially to religious persecution around the world, um, but we didn't really do that, but I, I think it was a very, it was a great conversation with two great guys. So that was a really long-winded conclusion. My family's already at the restaurant, probably ordered, waiting for me. So I'm going to remind you to support this show and to support your head. So you can support the show by supporting your head by going to MyPillow.com and using the code Jones for deep discounts on all of your uh, you know, you get pillows, you get sheets, you get slippers, you get robes. You just get pretty much anything you want now at MyPillow.com. And uh, so go on over there. Use the code Jones because then you support this show. This episode is also being brought to you by the Vulnerable People Project, standing in solidarity with the vulnerable so we can stop obsessing on ourselves, recognize how blessed and how privileged we are. We can order our life right now, right here, right today. Uh, to serve those who are, are suffering, go to the uh, thegreatcampaign.org to see what we're doing there. Also, movie to movement.com. 
I'm going to have a great show this week with one of my favorite people in the world. So make sure you subscribe and uh, so you don't miss a single show. All right. As you can tell, by the way, yes, I've lost, been losing my voice. I haven't been doing that many podcasts lately because I've been working on a movie project and doing like 10 other radio shows a day, 10 other, you know, 10 podcast, other people's radio shows, other people's podcasts and uh, not doing mine as frequently, but I've lost my voice and it's about to go. All right. Until next time. Thank you for listening to the Jason Jones show. This has been the Jason Jones show. Powered by Mudhouse Media.